This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt F. Oracle of the Action Network of Rotoviz. Welcome to the February 22nd, 2019 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and of course, one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You're also a PhD in mathematics, I should have mentioned that. Uh, you can follow Nick on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. Um, yeah, just uh, a really entertaining first week of NASCAR. And I think obviously, you know, with the new rules package, which, of course, we will talk about in the show, it's going to be uh, more entertaining stuff to come. Now, whether the racing will be entertaining or not, that remains to be seen. But at least as far as, uh, you know, intrigue into this race and intrigue into the season, uh, I don't think I don't think NASCAR could have started the season better with the Daytona 500. And I also don't think. Uh, the second race could start any better with uh, a lot of stuff to talk about with the new rules package. Yeah, let's uh, let's really get into it. Speed Weeks, I thought, was fantastic. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, just kind of tracking it, uh, betting on it. Uh, I had some, some good success there. Uh, but, yeah, a lot is going to be different now moving forward because of the, the new aerodynamic package. But let's talk about Daytona 500. Uh, Denny Hamlin won a crash-filled race. Uh, by the way, uh, nice call on, on Denny Hamlin as a uh, as someone who potentially could have a good season, a good start to his year. Uh, Hamlin won a crash-filled race, uh, his second Daytona 500 victory in four years. Uh, Nick, talk about the race at Daytona and uh, how did it work for you in terms of DFS? Yeah, it, I thought it was a great, great, maybe one of the best Daytona 500s I've watched in several years. I mean, we go back to last year's snoozer until the end. 2017 was a really good race, um, but really only after the the second stage ended. 2016 was another kind of snoozer where Joe Gibbs Racing just dominated. So it's been several years since we've had like a start to finish exciting race, and I thought. The intrigue of, uh, you know, we talked about the whole weekend of, oh, well, everybody's just going to run the high line and the Xfinity race was boring because everybody just ran the high line and uh, you can't go make the bottom lane work. And then all of a sudden, right off the bat, we saw Matt DiBenedetto take the lead on the bottom lane and, uh, you know, Matt DiBenedetto, <laughs> pure speed, Matt DiBenedetto taking the lead on the bottom lane when nobody thought the bottom lane could work. And then all race long, we saw both lanes um, pretty competitive. Now, obviously, the bottom lane was the preferred lane, which I think was a surprise because everybody thought the top lane would be the lane to be. But the idea is we saw really good racing the whole race. We also saw a lot of strategy, which was really cool. Um, we saw the leaders lapping cars, which at, uh, lapping a pack of cars, which I don't think I've ever seen at Daytona, a group of six leaders lapping a very large pack of cars. So there was just a lot of intrigue the whole race. That was an excellent race. And then, of course, towards the end, we had the big one. Uh, so Jimmy Johnson and the clash triggered the big one by getting into Paul Menard. This time Paul Menard triggered the big one by getting into Matt Benedetto. So I guess, uh, what goes around comes around, or I guess what came around went around in this case with Paul Menard, but, uh, he triggered a 21 or 22 car. I'm not sure what the exact count is wreck there. And then we also had a couple more big ones there at the end. Uh, so it was pretty much carnage. There were only 14 cars that finished on the lead lap and even fewer of them, uh, even fewer cars with, with no damage. I think basically only three cars got through all of the wrecks unscathed. So 
Um, yeah, just a, a wild race, and it ended with a Joe Gibbs Racing 1-2-3 finish. Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, Eric Jones, your top three drivers. As far as DFS, I got absolutely crushed, but I feel like it was a really good slate other than one little mistake. And I guess it could kind of end up being a major mistake, but uh, I, I feel like I analyzed the slate really well. The optimal lineup was all drivers starting 26th or worse plus uh, Denny Hamlin. So exactly like I thought would happen in the article. Um, the racing was exactly like I thought would be uh, for the most part. I thought we'd see a lot of competitive racing. I thought we would see a lot of crashes because people were questioning all week, oh, this is going to be a boring race. You know, William Byron's going to lead 400 uh, miles of the race. Or, uh, you know, should I be looking at starting more drivers starting further forward because it's been single file all week? And I, I was like, no, 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 no. And I got that part right. I got the part right where the winning lineup construction was going to be, you know, for the most part, drivers starting in the rear and maybe one or two drivers starting further forward. My big miss, my big miss was Ross Chastain. I pretty much completely wrote him off after giving him a brief pass. Um, when I was building my lineups, I had about 6% Ross Chastain. And then I was like, ah, what's the point in having 6% of them? So I just took him out completely. And of course, Ross Chastain was in the winning lineup. It was a unique lineup. So even though it was five kind of chalky drivers starting in the back, uh, I think it was Eric Jones, Kyle Busch, uh, Brad Keselowski, Kyle Larson, you know, four drivers right there that were really chalky. Plus Michael McDowell, who started in the back, was also pretty chalky. And then Ross Chastain and Denny Hamlin. So of, you know, of the front runners, Danny Hamlin, relatively chalky. And then the only super major contrarian play was Ross Chastain. And I completely wrote him off when I, I absolutely shouldn't have. So that was my only real regret for the whole weekend. But that cost me a lot because, uh, you know, I went underweight for the most part on, um, on uh, I guess, Kyle Busch. And, uh, you know, I think there was one contest where he was really high owned that I went underweight on him. And then the super big contest, uh, the $750,000 GPP, I was only slightly underweight on Kyle Busch, but I actually ended up being overweight on Keselowski because he went under owned in the $750,000 GPP. I was over on Michael McDowell. I was over on Eric Jones. I was over on um, Kyle Larson, as it turns out. He was much lower owned than I thought he was going to be. So all these drivers I thought was going to be under owned uh, were not as chalky in terms of actual ownership percentage in the $750,000 GPP. Five of the, and then Denny Hamlin I was under on um, because I tend to go underweight on drivers starting further forward. So it ended up being I was overweight on four of the six drivers in the winning lineup. Um, I still played a, a good amount of Denny Hamlin, like eight or ten percent, which is what I, you know, expected uh, to play out of drivers starting further forward. But the only big mistake was Ross Chastain. I completely wrote him off. He obviously was, you know, kind of able to keep with the pack. He didn't like, uh, you know, and even just looking at like practice and his pass plate history and stuff, it's been obvious he's been able to stay with the field. But I still kind of just totally wrote him off. I kind of put him in the uh, the BJ McLeod and. Uh, um, you know, Cody Ware tier of of bad when in terms of ownership percentage, when I know he's cognitively, I know he's not as bad as those drivers. So I should have had some exposure to him starting way back there. That was my big mistake. But other than that, I felt like the slate went really well. But uh, it just so happened that uh, I didn't have any really high scoring lineups uh, up in the top tier. So when you max enter and you don't get any, you know, top five or 10 or 15 lineups because all of them had Ross Chastain in it, uh, you don't end up winning money. Okay, so a couple of thoughts. One, uh, did you see the uh, the the video footage of Ryan Priest getting like cutting through the the uh, the big one that massive twenty one car wreck? Like it was amazing uh, to see. Do you like? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, ex I know exactly what you're talking about, and it reminds me of. Greg Biffle avoiding a 25 car wreck at Talladega. It's actually on my YouTube page. I uh, recorded that race uh, with my phone back in, you know, the mid early 2000s. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I recorded it, not the race with my phone, but I recorded a replay of it with my phone and posted it to my YouTube page. It reminds me of that Greg Biffle just threading like five needles in one wreck. And that was that was incredible stuff by Ryan Priest. Uh, probably a bit of luck in there involved, but oh, yeah. uh, sometimes you just got to. You just got to put your foot – and that's the crazy thing about these wrecks. 
sometimes just hammering the throttle and aiming right at a car is actually the best thing because then the car moves out of the way. So um, because, you know, spinning either left or right in front of you. So sometimes aiming right at the car in front of you works out. He aimed right at uh, one of those cars in front of him, and then the gap just opened up and he threaded the needle perfectly. Yeah. And uh, it worked out for me because I had Priest at plus 130 uh, in a head-to-head matchup against Daniel Hemrick, uh, which just – that seemed like such an absurd price. Like one of the worst yep. one of the worst uh, lines I thought was out there because there was really – I saw no difference between Priest and, and Hemrick. And, like, obviously I'm a guy who knows almost nothing about NASCAR, but, like, those two guys just seemed pretty equivalent to me. But it, it leads me to a, a second point, and it's something I think maybe to, uh, to earmark for uh, future – um, future restrictor plate races, or or maybe just Daytona, but something to think about. Uh, I had a strategy of pretty much betting every plus uh, underdog, uh, every plus money underdog in every head-to-head matchup. I didn't do it like exactly like that, but that was pretty much like the uh, the main thing I was looking to do. And uh, I went 500 on that but like because all of uh all of my wins were at plus money mm-hmm. it ended up being actually a pretty good nascar weekend for me uh by by just doing that and in in a field where like about half of the cars are going to be taken out you know like randomly uh in, in some incident uh I, I don't think it's it's a bad strategy i don't know do you have any thoughts on that no, I mean, I th- I've thought about doing that exact same strategy. And of the, the bets I did make, um, the head-to-head bets I did make, I always ended up taking even money or the plus side. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah that, that definitely makes sense. Now, unfortunately, the bets I did make all ended up not working out. I had Blaney <laughs> over Stenhouse at yeah. plus 110 or 115. Uh, I had uh, Truex versus Kyle Busch even money, which um, – you know, Kyle Busch has – everybody likes to bag on Martin Truex Jr. for not having great plate results, but he's had better plate results than Kyle Busch, and he was even versus Kyle Busch while Kyle Busch was minus 120 or something like that. So I did like that side, but uh, those two didn't work out. The one bet I won was the bet I was the kind of, I guess, the most tenuous on was Kyle Larson finishing better than 17 and a half. Um, but, uh, he finished seventh. He avoided most of the major wrecks and finished seventh. And I figured if he just finishes, if he just finishes the race, uh, he probably will beat 17 and a half. So that's kind of, you know, I was like, well, there's a 35% DNF rate. And, uh, for everybody across the board outside of the super back markers, it's more close to like a 30% DNF rate and did, did a little math there. And I was like, Kyle Larson's definitely a, a better than even money favorite to, uh, finish better than 17 and a half. So that worked out, but uh, those were my only head to head bets and everything else was a two win bet. I didn't have Danny Hamlin to win. So uh, that didn't work out, but uh, that's okay. I I think um, I still had a pretty solid process with the bets, but I think you're right. Just finding that value on the plus side in, uh, you know, plate races is, is awesome. And I think looking at this weekend, so we're not going to have any more restrictor plate races ever, at least this year uh, with the rules package. But I think with the, the potential randomness we could see at some of these races, it's it's not a bad strategy. What I think uh, the strategy going forward is, is to basically just find anything that's like an imbalance. If, if it's like 50-50 or better for the guy that's you know plus, then uh, I think those are all just bets you hammer for the most part. If you think anything's a coin toss or maybe even the plus guy might have a little bit of an edge, you just always bet the, the plus side because uh, – uh, we don't know how these races are going to play out to start the season. So I think there's going to be some edge in, in betting the plus side, but uh, I don't know for sure. I mean, <laughs> we'll get into all that. I yeah. have no idea how these races are going to play out. Uh, well, w- with that in mind, do you think that there's anything uh, that you can take away from this last weekend in terms of a, a DFS lesson to apply to the new aerodynamic package uh, we're going to have this weekend in Atlanta? I think the first thing is is the the Ross Chastain thing, and it's not Chastain himself. It's just don't write people off when you don't have a good reason to write them off. I didn't really have a good reason to write Ross Chastain off other than, oh, he's just kind of a low-owned play, so I'm just not going to use him. Uh, I didn't really have a good reason there. So don't don't write off guys if you don't have a specific reason. Now, with BJ McLeod and, and Cody Ware, I had very specific reasons. With Matt Benedetto or, or um, you know, Bubba Wallace, I had specific reasons to write them off. Uh, but Ross Chastain, I was just like, 
eh, so I just didn't play them. But but that's not a good enough reason. So really make sure with each driver you're analyzing uh, you, everything you can about them instead of just uh, kind of making a pass. And, and, you know, I did that with basically every driver in the field. And then I got the Ross Chastain, you know, I was like 35 drivers into this analysis. And I was like, ah, I don't know, just – you know, he he's never really finished that high at premium. Let's just write him off. But I've seen that he's been able to at least keep his nose clean. He was at least able to keep on the lead lap. And because of that, because of the fact that he started so far back and we know Ross Chastain generally has kept his nose clean in races, if this did turn into a wreck fest, um, because he was probably at the tail end of the pack, even though he could stay on the lead lap, that would mean he'd probably be avoiding all these wrecks. So I should have played him more. So uh, do the same thing in Atlanta. Make sure you analyze every driver and only disregard a driver if you have good reasons to disregard the driver. Uh, and then, yeah, by all means, disregard him. Now, if I had only played 10 or 15 lineups, I wouldn't feel so bad not playing Ross Chastain. But the fact that I max entered and didn't play any Ross Chastain, I'm definitely kicking myself for that one. So, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is just to absorb as much information as you can and then also make sure you're analyzing every all 40 or 37 drivers this weekend's situations. All right, let's uh, let's talk about Atlanta. Uh, the Atlanta Motor Speedway is a one and a half mile quad oval. It was last repaved in 1997. So the surface is 22 years old. Uh, it's notorious for its high tire wear thanks to uh, old racing surface. But uh, the big news, of course, is that NASCAR has the new aerodynamic package uh, that rolls out this weekend. Uh, talk about just first this new package and the new engine rolls and uh, what that might mean. Yeah, so NASCAR is going to be running what's called a tapered spacer, and it's kind of like a restrictor plate, except it's not a restrictor plate, but it does restrict the airflow to the engine, so it's going to restrict these drivers and these cars' horsepower to 550 horsepower. So that's the big change. We're going to reduce the horsepower from 750 to 550 thanks to the tapered spacer, and this is going to be at all tracks uh, out that are larger than one mile in length that are also not road courses. So all ovals bigger than one mile will be at 550 horsepower. One mile or less, and then the road courses will still be at the 750 horsepower. But uh, for as far as Atlanta is concerned, we're at 550 horsepower. The other changes, we're going to have a larger uh, rear spoiler, so that's going to create more drag and more downforce. Uh, there is going to be a wider radiator pan. There is going to be a uh, larger front splitter. So all of this is designed to create more drag, create more draft, and uh, to slow the cars down as well and keep them closer together so that there's more excitement, air quote, excitement in these races. Now, I thought we saw a lot of really good racing last year. Sure, there were definitely times the leader checked out or the front runners checked out, but uh, there were also a lot of amazing races. Chicagoland comes to mind, that battle at the end between Kyle Larson and Kyle Busch, you know, which is one of your standard, air quote, boring mile-and-a-half ovals. Well, Chicagoland put on an amazing race. Now, there were very boring races as well. The Las Vegas, uh, first Las Vegas race, I went to that. It was maybe the snooziest race I've ever been to. So I definitely understand NASCAR's aim at, uh, you know, bringing about these new rules. Now, uh, Atlanta is going to be part of a group of tracks where they're going to have. So there's two different rules packages for the 550 horsepower races. Atlanta is in a small group of, of races that will not have air ducts uh, going out the front wheel wells. So, um, the, the, all the other races outside of Atlanta and a couple other tracks will, will have the air ducts, but Atlanta won't. I'm not sure why or what that, uh, that's all about. Um, I'm hoping to learn more about that, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the new, the new rules here is to create more drag, uh, and, and lower the speeds so that we get a little bit more of a, a competitive race throughout the field. And even with the leaders, it allows the leaders to kind of check out a little bit less. Okay, so uh, Atlanta is running this version of the rules package without the air ducts, uh, and that will also be run at Homestead, Darlington, Indianapolis, and both of the Pocono races. Uh, what do you think the impact of the new aero package is going to be uh, on tire wear at Atlanta? Yeah, so, you know, the really old racing surface Atlanta, high tire wear. We see the same thing at Auto Club Speedway. 
we see pretty similar at Chicagoland, which is maybe why that was a better race than, you know, Las Vegas, which has a, uh, it does have a, you know, kind of middle age racing surface at Las Vegas, but definitely Chicagoland's an older racing surface. So maybe that's why it produced a better race. But uh, what I think the aero package impact will have on tire wear at Atlanta is I actually think it'll make tire wear less important, unfortunately, because I love seeing tire wear. I love seeing the fact that you have to manage your tires. You have to be easy on them. Uh, I, I think the big report is that after 20 laps, these cars are dropping one mile an hour, whereas after 20 laps last year, these cars were dropping three, three and a half miles an hour uh, around the, the race, you know, the racetrack for a lap uh, or even more in some cases. So the tire wear is actually, it's not minimized. It's definitely still more tire wear, I think, at Atlanta than at a lot of places, but it's not going to be as great as in the past. And I think part of that is the lower speeds. Um, part of that uh, will be just the fact that they have so much more downforce and drag that uh, the they're able to, um, I guess, uh, not abuse their tires in the corner, get really off the throttle and then get pick up on the throttle as much. They're, they're, they're a little bit smoother ride through the corners because they're not going as fast and because they have more downforce, so they don't have to abuse the tires as much. So I think the combination of the speed and the downforce levels are um, going to just be a factor on reduced tire wear Atlanta. So it, it's hard to say. I kind of want to play this a little bit like old Atlanta races because I do think tire management is going to be important, but I don't think it's going to be as crazy as in the past. What I do think it will be is, you know, Atlanta, its track surface is 22 years old. Chicagoland is only around uh, 16 or 17 years old. I think this could be more like Chicagoland style tire wear levels rather than last year Atlanta style tire wear levels. So I still think tire wear is going to be a factor. Tire management is going to be a factor. Uh, I just don't think it's going to be as great based off of the reports we're seeing. Okay. Uh, and from what we've seen in practice and qualifying, what do you expect racing to be like in Atlanta? Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> I have no idea what racing will be like at Atlanta. Um, we've, you know, I think the drivers have no idea what the race is going to look like. Um, I, we didn't really learn anything in opening practice. There wasn't much pack racing, uh, in opening practice. Qualifying is qualifying. So that's a whole different beast. I think final practice on Saturday, you know, which there's only one practice on Saturday. So I think that practice session is going to be maybe the most important practice session of the season, uh, this weekend. And, uh, other than that, I have absolutely no idea. Is the leader going to be able to check out? Uh, will we be able to get dominators? I have no idea where our cars going to be able to come from the back to the front. Uh, will, you know, mid pack cars be able to hang with a little bit better cars? Will back markers be able to be hang with mid markers or any, or even make their way forward. You know, we saw Corey LaJoy make the top 24 in qualifying. Is that going to be a case where Corey LaJoy could maybe make his way into the top 16 or 15 and, and pull off a big surprise? I don't know. I have, I've honestly no idea what to expect, especially in at Atlanta. Now Las Vegas, we saw the pack, you know, kind of testing. We did see the leader was able to hold people off, but Las Vegas doesn't have as high tire wear as Atlanta does. Uh, so I don't know. And also Atlanta is not running the air ducts like they did at Vegas. So there are some differences. So I honestly have no clue. Um, I'm very curious to see what we're going to see in practice on Saturday. Okay. Uh, before we jump into strategy and picks for Atlanta, let's talk about road of his content. Uh, there's no paywall anymore for NASCAR content that has been taken down. And, uh, you mentioned that the apps will be updated, uh, how and when is that update going to happen? Yeah, so um, as we've talked about, the content that we are providing at Rotoviz is going to be free for the foreseeable future. 
Um, I am going to get the apps updated after final practice. And I'm going to be doing that with our guy that we talked about on the podcast last weekend, Scott Newman. Uh, he is going to be helping me update all of that. So he and I are going to go through the app updating process together. At Daytona, we didn't really go through the process just because I wanted to get everything done as quickly as possible for you guys who were uh, paid subscribers for Daytona. So I'm going to go through the process with him, and uh, we're going to get the apps updated, and he's going to help me eventually automate that process so it doesn't take as long going forward. Uh, so that's Good that we have the road of his kind of site reconstruction going on while also we're going to be uh, training Scott on on uh, my process and then how he can help us automate that process. So all this is very good. So Saturday, final practice will end. We'll import all the practice data. Uh, we've got all the qualifying data imported, and then we will update the apps after that. So I'm going to just do my normal process. He's going to kind of shadow me, uh, and then uh, he's going to – you know, going forward in the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to automate my process so that I don't have to go through my process uh, anymore. And that'll actually make make turnaround time quicker for, for these apps and for the models and everything like that. So that's going to kind of be the uh, the new process as far as updating the apps is it's hopefully eventually going to be automated. But right now, I still got to do it manually. So we got to wait for final practice, and then it'll probably take a little bit of time just because um, I'm also showing Scott the process, and I'm going to be, uh, you know, he'll he'll be able to ask me questions and all that. So it'll probably be a few hours after final practice we'll have the apps updated. Okay. Um, the optimizer has usually been, uh, sorry, it's traditionally had your projection model as the default projections. Um, what projections? Are going to be in the model going forward yeah um so we're still going to have my models projections in the the optimizer app so that's still going to be the default uh so i'm also going to show scott how i run the model and then we're also going to get new ideas for for building models in the future and, and uh, being able to customize the optimizer so if you want to build your own model for example you can import your own projections into the model um, so we've got some ideas around that and and so forth so uh, that is, is going to be still, you know, my model projections going into the optimizer this weekend. And then moving forward, we're also going to be trying to, uh, see if we can figure out a way to, you know, BYOB model style, build your own, uh, I guess I shouldn't say B, but it's BYO model, build your own model. And, uh, then you can import that into the optimizer as well. Okay. With the new aerodynamic package. What kind of performance are you expecting from the model? Um, well, so here's the thing about statistical modeling. The model is only as accurate as the assumptions are valid. So if we're assuming past Atlanta races are going to be like this Atlanta race, I can't say that I'm very confident in a model built off of past Atlanta races. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know what kind of performance the model is going to give. Now, that said, uh, I'm not just going to be basing this model on past Atlanta races, but you get the idea. I think we have no idea what to expect from this race. Uh, we don't know what assumptions are going to be valid. So using past data uh, with a completely different rules package, a completely different aerodynamic package, et cetera, uh, is, is only going to be, um, you know, there'll still be some accuracy. The better cars will be better. The worst cars will be worse for the most part. But I think the, the, better to worse range gets kind of shrunk. So I still think there will be some accuracy. I just don't think it's going to be as high as in the past. And Atlanta already was a relatively lower accuracy large oval, you know, around 0 0.48, 0 0.5 instead of, you know, 0 0.58 or 0 0.6 or even sometimes 0.7 like Chicagoland was. Uh, Atlanta's on the lower end of that scale. So we can expect probably even less performance from the model than that just because totally new rules, totally new uh structure of nascar it's different kind of racing we're probably going to expect you can't really rely on old things uh and the assumptions from old races to predict a completely different style of racing okay uh this is going to sound kind of random but as you were talking i was looking through uh some of the road of his tools uh just to kind of get a sense of what things might look like um or kind of like how they might be impacted uh, by the new aerodynamic package or like what things might be relevant, what things wouldn't. I was looking at the driver sim scores for Daytona. And uh, do you know how many number ones 
Denny uh, Hamlin had in his driver comps? Oh, man. I actually do not know. But uh, now I'm curious because uh, I do remember that Denny Hamlin's upside was number one. And uh, to have an upside of one, you have to have at least – I think it's 15% or 25%. Uh, I think it's I think it's 15% that we're doing yeah. at Rotoviz. So you have to have at least like I think it's four or five number ones in there. So I'm guessing at least four. He had five. He had five. Yeah. yeah. I like I'm doing just kind of trying to do a quick uh, run through. I think that's going to be the high. Yeah, I believe it is, because I remember looking at the other guys. I was yeah. surprised Keselowski or Logano didn't have a one. I know uh, Martin Truex Jr. didn't have a one or anything like that. Kyle Busch didn't, so uh, Kevin Harvick didn't. And then, um, you know, pretty much everybody else, like <laughs> I mean, drivers like Stenhouse even, who, yeah. who win plate races, they didn't have ones. So I remember Denny Hamlin had a one. That very clearly stuck in my head, because I obviously answered the question without even looking at it. You surprised me with this. Yeah, and... Uh, Dang, I wish I had. Yeah, I wish I, I would bet Denny Hamlin now. <laughs> yeah, I wish I would have bet that. Uh, okay, uh, bringing it back, the model. What factors are going into it this weekend? Yeah, actually, I want to say one more thing. Not only okay. did Denny Hamlin have five ones, they were all in the top ten comps. Yeah. So yeah, just crazy. That, and that, that was, was that was with the NFs included. Yeah. yeah, that was with the NFs included as well. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, what was your question? It's probably on the outline. I need to. Yeah. No, what, what, what are the factors going into the model this weekend? Uh, very good. Very good. Uh, so what I'm actually building the model off of is going to be uh, past large oval races. And I'm also going to pull in past restrictor plate races to give a little bit of randomness. So I'm not doing the, the mile or less tracks. I'm not doing the road courses. I'm not doing the, uh, the steep tracks, but uh, I am doing the past large oval races uh, and then also the restrictor plate races to add in some randomness. So those are the, not the factors, but those are the races that are going to go into the model. And I'm going to do that for the past three years worth of data. So 2016 to the present, cause that's kind of uh, the recent NASCAR drivers. I guess I could actually do it all the way back to 2005 because that'll pull in all sorts of races from, from large ovals and, 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 races and it actually actually probably makes more sense because that's going to give us a wider variety of different cars different rules different whatever so i think i actually will probably tweak it and go all the way back to 2005 and pull in that data or maybe 2011 because that's when we started getting 10 lap average data but speaking of 10 lap average data that is a significant factor in the model from the 2016 the present data um, i was just thinking about the gen 6 car which is right. a good assumption to have and then also, since they started trimming the downforce in 2016, but that actually doesn't make sense now that they're adding downforce. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redefine, you know, and this is the other part of like guessing what your model needs to be when you have no idea, is uh, I need to talk it through and figure out what factors or what races should even go into the model. So what I think I'm going to do, so I go back to 2011, that will pull in a bunch of different packages, you know, the Car of Tomorrow package, the the higher downforce uh, Gen 6, the lower downforce Gen 6. It'll just pull in a bunch of different things, add some randomness, but it'll just be the large ovals plus the restrictor plate races. That makes 10-lap average a significant factor. That makes last uh, 18 or 15 races a significant factor. That makes um, track type history a significant factor. And since large ovals, everything is large ovals, it's pretty much means how have drivers done at large ovals in the past. Uh, and then also it brings in fastest laps, which I thought was cool. So um, fastest laps was one of the interesting things that uh, kind of went into the the model for uh, the Daytona 500 as well. And um, I think it's interesting that it shows up over the 2016 to 2018 sample size as fastest laps. Uh, whether you're you're taking past 15 races fastest laps or track type fastest laps, they're kind of interchangeable. They're uh, pretty highly correlated for a set of data that's mostly large ovals anyway. So um, you can you can take either one of those. The past 15, uh, let's just say past 15 fastest laps. So again, recapping that: long run practice speed, uh, past 15 overall races, past races at the track type, and then also past 15 race fast laps uh that ends up being predictive in terms of finishing position as well so that's what i'm putting into it and it's going to pull from a bunch of different tracks a bunch of different years a bunch of rules packages so we'll see if uh i'll, I'll when i update the model this weekend and when when i'll probably do a road of his live show uh this weekend whether it's either saturday evening or sunday morning a free road of his live show uh I'll, probably over on my twitch page 
um, we'll, we'll be doing that, but I'll update what really has gone into the model um, because now that we talked it through, I think I should probably go beyond 2016 as well. With so much uncertainty heading into the weekend, uh, how are you formulating a DFS strategy? So first of all, like I said, I think practice is going to be important. It shows up in the model for a large sample size of races. Uh, and then I'm also going to be looking at this tire wear element because we still will see tire wear at Atlanta. Um, so those are the two things I'm going to key on for Atlanta is what am I going to see from final practice and how is the tire wear factor going to, to come into play? Uh, so I think I'm actually going to try to focus on drivers that, uh, you know, tend to perform better under higher tire wear situations. Now, uh, again, that's, that's, it, it's not as significant probably as in the past because what we've seen in Atlanta is, you know, now 20 laps, you're only dropping a mile, mile and a half instead of dropping two to three miles an hour. So it's like the tire wear is kind of reduced in half. So I can pull in, you know, a, a larger sample size of races, races with maybe mid tire wear and then also high tire wear and analyze that sample size of races to figure out which drivers I like. And then also, of course, we want to adjust based off of practice times as well. And then, um, you know, and then just looking at large oval history as well. But but I think I'm going to focus on large oval history at the mid to high tire wear tracks is my main area of focus. You mentioned final practice and tire wear as two key elements you're going to focus on. Uh, what should DFS players look for in final practice? Yeah, so um, I think in final practice, we really want to see are these drivers going to run in a pack? Uh, will Will they run, you know, not in pack where they run in teams. How do these teams work together? Uh, I think we will probably see some pack racing in final practice, but I'm not positive. Um, but the tire wear issue is also kind of a fun factor in it. You know, if, uh, if one driver manages his tires better than another, he may be able to separate from the pack or at least move forward in the pack a lot easier. So I still think tire wear is going to be important. So in final practice, we want to really see what kind of a practice are we going to see? If they're going to continue not to run in packs, uh, maybe we rely a little bit less on that practice data. If they do run in a pack, maybe we somehow oddly rely a little more on that practice data. I don't know. It's such a, a weird thing, but uh, I also want to see how easy it is to make passes. Now, of course, I think a lot of times these teams will be working together uh, you know, all the Ford cars or the, you know, the Chevy drivers or the Hendrick drivers or whatever. Um, so you may see some teamwork there as far as setting up the car, but I do think teams are going to test out how do they pass? How do they work together to pass? Is it, is it easy to lead? Is it not easy to lead? So I have no idea what to look for or what will happen in practice. And that's what I'm going to be looking for is, is what things can we make note of in practice that uh, actually did happen and see if we can uh, make any sense of how that might apply towards the race. Which drivers uh, stand out this weekend? Uh, the guys who have excelled uh, recently at large ovals with high tire wear. Yeah, so I, I mentioned that was going to be kind of a factor that I'm looking at is is this tire wear issue here and uh, which drivers have performed better at high tire wear tracks. And the number one driver that stands out is Martin Truex Jr. And I think that's great because if we look at the DraftKings salaries this weekend, Martin Truex Jr. is priced down in seventh. We're talking about a driver who was in the big three last year, uh, who is two seasons ago's champion, uh, now priced down as the seventh highest priced driver, actually making a step up technically from Joe Gibbs or from uh, front row uh, furniture row racing. Let's get that right to Joe Gibbs racing. So now actually in the granddaddy team. Uh, and he's dropped in price relative to some of these other drivers. I don't know if DraftKings is factoring in more plate-type racing because they've got Harvick, Logano, Keselowski as the top three. Then they've got Kyle Busch, Hamlin, and then Elliott. So I don't know if DraftKings is factoring a lot more maybe possible restrictor plate influence here. Uh, but uh, Martin Truex Jr. being priced seventh as the best high-tire wear driver, and it's not even close, 120.9 driver rating in his uh, races that he both – did and did not uh, finish. So he finished every single high tire wear race over the past two years. Average finish of 3.8, uh, 21.3% of the laps led. I think he got to go. Martin Truex Jr. has the best value on the board this weekend. Um, Kevin Harvick is the highest priced driver, but he also has 30.4% of the laps led over the past two years at the high tire wear track. So certainly don't count out Kevin Harvick. 
Uh, but then if we go down further down the list here. I thought a name that was interesting that kind of popped out to me was Austin Dillon, uh, 75.1 driver rating. Um, he doesn't quite have the finishes, but uh, if you look at his driver rating, he's run a lot better than he's finished. And the driver rating, of course, is the more predictive statistic. He's right in there with, uh, you know, drivers like Jimmy Johnson, um, just a little bit behind uh, Ryan Blaney. Uh, and he's above drivers like Alex Bowman, Ryan Newman, Daniel Suarez. Of course, Suarez is now uh, at Stuart Haas, but uh, he's ahead of, of Eric Almarola and uh, – so he's you know ahead of a pack of names that are kind of mid-tier price drivers and or names, and uh, you know he's priced down there at 7,700 below Johnson, Jones, Suarez, Kurt Busch, etc. So some of these more mid-tier names. So um, I kind of like Austin Dillon as a bit of a value as well. Uh, and then you know outside of, of Truex and Austin Dillon, it's actually kind of interesting. Most of these drivers seem to fall into place relative to. Uh, kind of relative to where they are but one other name that stands out if you remove dnfs kyle larson second overall in driver rating the best average finish has led about 10 percent of laps so um you know outside of 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 what i think austin dillon and, and martin Truex jr maybe being the best values on the board i also like kyle larson he's priced just below martin Truex jr in eighth but he comes in second in some of the major categories over the past two years at high tyroid tracks as well when you remove dnfs now you add in dnfs uh kyle larson again actually as well um, i was looking back at 2016 when you add in dnfs but last two years kyle larson second in all the categories even with dnfs as well on the flip side who are the drivers who've underperformed at uh these same tracks so number one for me is, uh, in terms of underperformance, is Eric Almarola. You look in, there's like a, a big kind of tier of drivers in the 100 or upper 90s range. And then there's a massive drop down to Eric Almarola, under 90 driver rating, average finish 16.7. Uh, he did lead 8.8% of the laps at the, the high tire wear tracks last year. So a little bit of was unlucky. He actually dominated at Chicagoland, so that's a bit misleading. Um, and had a really poor finish from that. But an 89.6 driver rating, while you did dominate a portion of the race, you would expect a higher driver rating. And that's because he had poorer performances at Atlanta and Auto Club. So a um, little bit of a surprise there for Eric Almarola. Uh, he also is, of course, our pole sitter, which I thought was interesting. So he is priced as the 11th highest driver this weekend. Um, moving down the list, I think uh, some other drivers that kind of underperformed recently – uh, I would put in that list there, Paul Menard down at 66.7 driver rating. If you look at that mid-tier group of cars, um, Paul Menard way down there. Now, he is priced at 7000 but he's priced ahead of you know Ryan Newman, for example. And uh, his his driver rating is uh, you know closer to William Byron's than it is to somebody like, uh, let's say, right in front of him. Well, Byron's priced right in front of him as well, but closer to William Byron than it is to like somebody like Alex Bowman, who's way up there in driver rating at 74.8, whereas Paul Menard is down there at 66.7. And Alex Bowman at five average finishing spots better than Paul Menard. So a little bit down on Paul Menard, also a little bit down on, on Alec, I'm sorry, William Byron, just for the similar reasons. He and Menard priced the same, basically the same driver rating, basically the same average finish. So those two guys haven't seemed to perform as well at the high tire wear tracks. And then also Joey Logano at the top tier of drivers. Uh, you look at him, he's, in terms of price, the second highest priced driver, our defending NASCAR champion, but uh, he does only have the sixth highest driver rating at these uh, large or at these large ovals with high tire wear. So maybe a bit of caution there with Joey Logano, but fortunately for Logano DFS players, he only qualified 27th. So he does make for a really nice place differential play this weekend, but because everyone's going to be playing Joey Logano starting 27, uh, you know, starting 27th, it might be an interesting way to go a little bit underweight on him in GPPs. So Almirola is starting first, uh, yet he's underperformed at large ovals with high tire wear. Uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. 
Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Here is uh, starting second. We have 325 laps scheduled. Uh, assuming we want dominators, and I think you probably do want dominators, uh, how do you go about thinking of dominators under these new rules? And then are you considering either Almirola or Stenhouse? Yeah, uh, it's it's really tough to say how we, we consider dominators. I mean, um, for one, maybe, maybe a, a dominator, just because of this aero package, it might be hard to pass. I don't know. Um, we, we did see a little bit out of Vegas, but again, Atlanta is going to be a different beast. I think we'll see tire wear play a factor, which means if the leader doesn't take care of his tires, he could easily, easily be passed under the old rules. Now under these rules, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I definitely think we'll see a dominator at some point, but I'm not convinced it's going to be Almirola or Stenhouse. If I do think it's going to be one of those two, I do think it'll be Almirola given his dominance at Chicagoland last year. If we look at Ricky Stenhouse leading races at high tire wear tracks, Zero laps led last year, and then in 2017, zero laps led at the high tire wear tracks as well. Um, but if this plays more like a restrictor plate race, both of these guys are in really good shape. They're both really good restrictor plate racers. Uh, so um, then there could be some merit to playing one or the other of these drivers. But I'm actually pretty inclined to just fade both of these guys. I think Almirola is going to go over-owned. Um, I think Stenhouse at 7,500 may be more reasonable so if you want to be a little bit contrarian with your front row, um, maybe play Stenhouse and Almirola a little bit more equally. Um, but it does look like those Stuart Haas cars have a lot of speed. I mean, you look at just at qualifying, Almirola, uh, Daniel Suarez, and Clint Boyer all qualifying way up there inside the top five. Kevin Harvick had steering problems all weekend long so far. They haven't figured that out in practice or in qualifying. So Stuart Haas cars outside of Harvick look really strong. So I could see a case for Almirola leading as well. But just in terms of ownership percentages, I think he may go too highly owned. Um, but uh, it's so tough to say. I'm I'm inclined to kind of fade the front row as well because I think we could see tire wear come into play more than we do at like Daytona. I think we could, could see strategy come into play, unknowns come into play. But I'll have a better idea after practice what I really think about Almirola and Stenhouse. So I... I like the contrarian idea of maybe playing more Stenhouse than uh, you you would for what you would normally play as a front row, but I still think the front row will probably go too highly owned. I think if we do see a dominator, it may come from uh, one of the bigger names, Truex, Larson, uh, maybe even somebody uh, like Kyle Busch, uh, if, if he, you know, he started right up there in sixth as well. I think it could be one of the bigger names that we see end up dominating. What drivers do you like as possible dominators this weekend? Yeah, I mean, number one for me, uh, I think would have to be, uh, I, I just mentioned Kyle Busch right there starting in sixth. He's, you know, he, he led a good chunk of the Daytona 500. So, you know, the Toyotas looked pretty strong in the Daytona 500. So if any of that plate stuff carries over, that's good for Kyle Busch. Also, he just is a driver that's so aggressive, so uh, knowledgeable that I think he has a chance to lead in the early going. And if we look at the high tire wear races at the large ovals, you know, Kyle Busch still led. Uh, 12% of the laps in, in 2017. And then if we go over to 2018, he led 19% of the laps. So certainly able to get it done at the high tire wear ovals as well. So a little bit of both good things going on there. And then also I just really like Kyle Busch based off his Xfinity results, et cetera. So Kyle Busch would be my top dominator candidate. Also, like I said, I like Martin Truex Jr. starting in ninth. I don't know if he's much as of a dominator starting in ninth, but I also think it's probably going to be easier to get to the front of the field under these rules, also with the tire wear. So I certainly like Martin Truex Jr. Like I said, Kyle Larson is an outside shot as a dominator. Uh, and uh, then probably after those three, I, I don't mind some Almirola and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. as possible dominators. If of those two, I'm more confident in Almirola dominating, but I like the ownership percentage theory of of like i said of having more stenhouse relative to the amount of front row drivers you would normally own than almarola if that makes any sense what about for cash games who are the guys you're looking at there yeah well the team penske cars really struggled in qualifying joey Logano 27th ryan blaney 26th uh i definitely think you have to consider them as cash game plays uh as the obvious cash game plays but i also really like chase elliott starting there in 22nd 
just given his restrictor plate history uh, and um, yeah, I mean, mainly just the restrictor plate idea of it. Then, uh, you know, I think those three are, are pretty obvious plays. So if you want to dig down a little bit in the salary range, Chris Busher starts 30th. Wasn't very competitive in Daytona, but, you know, that things happen in the Daytona 500. We have also seen Chris Busher be really good at Daytona. So I don't mind some Chris Busher in cash games starting 30th. Uh, we look at these high tire wear tracks. 2018, Chris Busher was 25th in driver rating at the uh, uh, the high tire wear tracks. So um, actually started 23rd in, in driver rating last year at the high tire wear tracks. So he's starting 30th, not the greatest qualifying effort. And his teammate Ryan Priest starts in 25th. So we know there's more speed in that car as far as, uh, you know, they have the same equipment. So I really like Chris Busher starting in 30th, $6,200, definitely underpriced on DraftKings. All right, thoughts on possible GPP plays? Yeah, I mean, uh, outside of, of, of the guys I've already mentioned, Truex, I really like. Um, I really like uh, – I, I, I can't say I really like Austin Dillon starting in 10th, but I think that will keep his ownership percentage down. So I certainly don't mind playing Austin Dillon starting there in 10th. But uh, I wonder if people are going to actually uh, sleep on Brad Keselowski a little bit just because you got Logano starting 27th, Blaney starting 26th. Keselowski starts 19th. And if we look at these high tire wear tracks last year, he had the third best driver rating. So um, not that Keselowski is going to be under or I wouldn't say he's going to be low owned in DFS, but uh, relative to somebody like Joey Logano, who only starts eight spots further back in the exact same equipment. Keselowski has shown better performance at these tracks. He's also generally been just as good, if not better, of a restrictor plate racer than Joey Logano. So um, I like, you know, maybe going a little underweight on Logano and, and getting some leverage there with Brad Keselowski, um, just because I think Logano is going to be so highly owned that, uh, especially at the mid and higher stakes, I think Logano is going to be so highly owned that I like getting off of him a little bit in favor of some more Brad Keselowski as a GPP play. As far as Joe Dirt cheap drivers, uh, do you think that uh, there might be more who are viable uh, given the new aerodynamic package? Certainly until DraftKings kind of sorts things out with these rules and uh, the, the, where drivers stand this year, I think there will be some value in the Joe Dirt cheap tier. I mean, Ty Dillon had a, a very good plate race. He's $5,600. So he doesn't quite qualify for Joe Dirt, but he's close enough. Really, we say Joe Dirt is 5500 and under. But Matt Tift in that uh, in that front row i was confused furniture row and front row in that front row motorsports car which is the same as david reagan and michael mcdowell um you know he's down there and qualified 31st he's 5500 dollars. i certainly think he's in play um cory lajoy is only 5200 dollars. he qualified 24th what if he actually does something you know because he's in that car that matt de benedetto was in last year and uh that was pretty competitive in some some races matt de benedetto's car and now if you include the draft here and the speed that car has shown Joy's probably going to go incredibly low owned, but what if he pulls off like, let's say an 18th place finish or a 20th place finish and he's $5,200, even a 20th place finish. That's going to be, um, let's see, 44 minus 20. That's 24 plus four, 28 points for a driver's $5,200 borderline good enough. But, uh, that means I definitely think you could have some Corey LaJoy or maybe somebody like Parker Klingerman's in play. You know, I don't want to rule... Going back to the Ross Chastain thing, I don't want to rule any of these drivers out other than maybe like Cody Ware and maybe BJ McLeod. Um, I'm not even sure here with Garrett Smithley, like $4,800, the lowest priced driver on the board. I want to I want to figure out, you know, is Garrett Smithley even viable down there at $4,800? Now, obviously, um, in terms of qualifying 35th and, and Ware 36th and McLeod 37th, but uh, I want to make sure in final practice, if we get to see Garrett Smithley out there, if he's even somebody we could consider at $4,800. But I do think this Joe Dirt cheap tier is in play. And I'm also just curious overall about DraftKings salaries with the way we could see more pack racing, maybe fewer dominators this year. If drivers like Kevin Harvick at 12200 are going to come down because dominance is going to be less pronounced than in the past. I think in the past, you know, I remember two years ago, the highest price drivers, we were shocked if a driver was 10,800. And now we routinely saw guys in the upper 11 and lower 12K range last year, with especially with the big three being so dominant, uh, leading 150 laps every race. One of these drivers would end up doing, it seemed like. So it made sense to price them up at 12.2 or 11.8. 
I wonder if we're going to see that top range shrink a little and maybe the bottom range come up as the year progresses. But right now, um, I really like the value in just fading the super high price drivers and uh, maybe playing a little bit more of the super low price drivers because I think there's going to be some more unpredictability than than we're we're expecting. You know, uh, everybody was so confident last weekend that we saw all this single file racing. Let's go more single file racing because the recency bias of our eyes have seen it. Um, so again, I think the recency bias of last year or, or just the big names, Harvick's, Logano's, et cetera, probably will draw too much ownership percentage to these drivers when there's a lot more randomness than we, we, you know, expect. Uh, again, people are just going to be overconfident relative to what confidence we have in how this race is going to play out. I have a kind of macro question. Um, there have been rules changes, uh, and aerodynamic changes in the past, and I'm wondering how seismic the differences were from one package to the next, because uh, my my sense is that it's it's possible um, that although the the style of racing will be different. So, for instance, we could see fewer dominators, uh, but my sense is that you know maybe things kind of shake out where the drivers who were better before are still the drivers who are good with this new package. Uh, and that, um, some of the things that were predictive before, uh, we realized after a few races will still be the things that moving forward still have the most predictive quality. Um, but I, like, what is your sense of, of all of that? But I guess starting with the, the first part of that question, um, how how seismic were the differences between uh, old rules and uh, older older rules and like the transition between them? So my my gut feeling and on this analysis of of rules changes in the past is this is a very seismic difference. This might be the most significant seismic difference. If you just read like the the columns of like the NASCAR media that is always covering they feel like this is also the biggest seismic difference of any change. Yeah. So uh, NASCAR has specifically done this with entertainment in mind, with keeping the racing closer. Now, they've said that about that in the past, but the changes have been more like, oh, we're going to trim down for us here. We're going to tweak some, you know, a ride height rule there. Not like we're going to slap uh, restricting power on these engines. I know it's not a restrictor plate, but a, a tapered spacer that restricts things more add more drag, try to create pack racing, etc. We probably haven't really seen that kind of a seismic change ever in NASCAR, even going from like, let's say the Gen 4 car to the car of tomorrow, that Gen 5 car, uh, which we don't ever call the Gen 5, it's just the car of tomorrow, uh, as it was known. That was mostly uh, largely built around changes in driver safety. Uh, they also did away with, you know, kind of the, the old valence stuff and then into this uh, splitter thing. But so there were some changes, but it was still largely, you know, you could check out or um, it was it, there was a lot of aero dependence. Aero push is what we call it in terms of like uh, once you get up to a driver, it's hard to pass them. This is designed specifically to make once you get up to a driver in front of you, it's easier to pass them. So um, I think this is this is absolutely something that's going to make a, a seismic difference. So with that said, I agree. I still think the better drivers will shake out as the better drivers. I just think uh, that will use a larger portion of the 36 races for us to see that than uh, last year. You know, we had the big three within like 10 races. Uh, it was the big three. If you know, and it was very clearly the big three. Uh, and then it was like, who's going to shake out as fourth and et cetera. I still think uh, we're going to see the better drivers shake out in the end, the bigger teams as they learn more. But there's going to be a learning process for all of these teams. I mean, we saw how poorly the Penske cars qualified this weekend. I don't think that's going to continue at the start of the season, certainly. So um, I, I certainly think we'll see things shake out. It's kind of like the restrictor plates. As as they went to the Gen 6 car and then as these, you know, they're, the aerodynamics got trimmed and stuff, uh, it took a little bit of a time, but then the Fords really became the dominant manufacturer until magically, uh, you know, this past weekend, they didn't have their best race, but they still seemed pretty dominant all week leading up to uh, the Daytona 500. I think we're going to see something like that, where over time, some of these teams or, or and or manufacturers will hit it and, and be, I wouldn't say the dominant uh, manufacturer team, but it's certainly the kind of what we would call the cream of the crop teams. And then you'll still have your lesser teams. But I think uh, part of that will be 
there's still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns. Um, and uh, I, I think people will still be more confident in certain drivers than other drivers, for example. So I do think there is going to be um, some times where we can take advantage of, of the randomness that is going to be introduced with this package. All right. All that makes sense. Uh, any closing thoughts here? Uh, closing thoughts is just that um, really watch practice, like watch it, Have, actively watch it, um, try to make note of what you see in practice. And then also a road of his live will take place. Um, it'll either be Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Uh, I haven't decided yet. I'll tweet it out um, just based off of my schedule and stuff. Uh, but uh, I will do a free road of his live show over at my Twitch page. So check out my Twitter timeline for details on that. Okay, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.